Today on Maine Calling, Maine Women in History. Maybe it's something in the water, or the rocky coast, or mountain air. But for a long time, Maine has been the source of strong, impressive women who've made a big impact on the world. You've likely heard of some of them, for example, Margaret Chase Smith, Joan Benoit Samuelson, Harriet Beecher Stowe, but there are many others as well who don't always get the spotlight. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we celebrate Women's History Month with two historians who will share some highlights and facts about women in Maine who have made a real difference through history. And we want to hear from you about women who inspire you every day. Maine Calling is just ahead. Maine Calling on Demand is made possible in part by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org learn. And by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. We celebrate Women's History Month by highlighting some of the influential women in Maine history. Joining me for this hour, Dr. Libby Bischoff, who is professor of history and university historian for the University of Southern Maine. She's also executive director of the Osher Map Library and Smith Center for Cart Cartographic Education. Did I pronounce that right, Libby? You did. Good morning. <laughs> And Jamie Kingman Rice, Deputy Director of the Maine Historical Society. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning. We invite you to share your comments, questions. Is there a woman whose contributions you would like to highlight? Uh, maybe somebody in the past or somebody today. That's fine. Send an email, talk at mainepublic.org, comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. Jamie, let's first talk broadly about the role women have played in shaping our state. I heard recently that there are reasons Maine women have been a big part of our history. One is that with so many men in jobs like fishing or logging, often the men would be off to work for extended periods and, and the women historically would you know run the farm or uh, take on key jobs like being town manager. So uh, talk about that tradition and how that has formed Maine and the role of women in Maine. Well, I, I think that to some respect, I think that that might be applicable, but it might be a bit of an oversimplification sort of of the dynamic. I mean, I think that as a well, in the colonial period, certainly over the last 400 years, really marking kind of a, a rural and sort of almost frontier dynamic for the first couple of centuries. So I think people had to be really resourceful. And I think that that can kind of broaden the dynamic of the roles that people play. So I think it probably had a lot more to do with uh, necessity and kind of shared dynamics. But to be fair, certainly um, a, a lot of uh, struggles to, to see the equality and recognition throughout the time period, how that kind of plays into to, to the roles that people play because of the maritime or lumbering, et cetera. I, I'm not sure that... Um, that there's any kind of strong evidence for that perhaps so Libby, more the, 
the the frontier history than the specific I would think so. Industries. Right. Yeah, Libby, what would you like to add to that? I think that's really I think that's part of it. I also think it's like a model of shared labor in this very harsh seasonally mm -hmm. dependent landscape, right? Like, you know, stretching back to time immemorial with the Wabanaki. Sure, there's gendered work, but it's also shared labor of survival, right? And subsistence and eating and everyone playing their role and kind of keeping the family units together. I mean, there's definitely what's what's funny, I think, and Jamie, I agree with what you said, like sometimes that's an oversimplification, but then all of these like very specific examples rise to the fore, right? Like Abby Burgess, Grant, the lighthouse keeper, you know, who when her dad got, you know, caught in a storm, he was gone for a month. She kept Matinica's rock burning, you know, the lighthouse burning all 28 lamps in the 1850s. Um, so I think we get these stories of singular women with these amazing feats, right? She was only 16 when she does this. That sort of highlight that singularity when I think the daily reality for people is you're not running a farm, you're not running a fishing business, you're not living here without that that shared labor of 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 women and men and okay. and taking over for one another when they're gone right right well let's talk let's let's start at the beginning <laughs> libby mentioned um wabanaki women and jamie who would you like to highlight i, I know again with every category we talk about, with every, um, uh, we, we only have an hour, a little less than an right. hour, so we're not going to be able to talk about anybody. But so maybe just some highlights of some, yes, yes. Uh, uh, one or two Wabanaki women you'd like to yeah, um, well, bring everybody's I, I attention to. A good place to start is, you know, understanding the historical record and as, you know, Libby with the time of memorial and 13,000 years of Wabanaki history, where do we in present day see representation? And I think a good place to start is in the, about in the 1660s, we have uh, evidence of where Abita, who was known also as Joan, who is um, uh, allowing uh, George Munjoy to uh, uh, settle land in what is today Westbrook. So this is the sort of one of the first times, if not the first time in sort of Maine history, what becomes Maine, that we see written representation of a woman in power uh, within the Wabanaki community. So I think that's kind of a good place to to start it off, as as it were. Can you repeat her name? So this is in 1660. She's negotiating a contract. Yes. So in 1666, uh, Wera Bita, who's known as Joan or Jane in the historical record, and um, and she is uh, uh, signing a deed allowing George Munjoy to settle land in what is today uh, Westbrook. All right. Libby, anybody you'd like to add? I think just thinking in that in that scope, um, I think that's one of the hardest things about the show today, like to highlight the individual or the collective or the roles of women with, within the tribe. And I think it's highlighting, you know, singular folks like Werabita, um, also people like, you know, Molly Ockett, who was a Pigwocket healer um, with a lot of interactions in, in Western Maine and in what we now know as, as the Bethel area. Um, just connections of how people appear in the written record and don't, you know, like Jamie can trace that back because there's a deed that we're about to signed, right? I'm always questioning sort of who don't we, who don't we know about, you know, we, we know sure. about the folks make it into the historical record. So I think this is a real 
chance for people um, to correct that record and bring forth more and more people. All right. Um, let's uh, just talk about a little later in history. Um, Jamie, um, of course, we have Martha Ballard, who was um, the midwife who kept a journal in Hollowell in the 1700s. And um, that became a midwife's tale written by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, am I pronouncing that correctly? She was on this program, I should know. But um, so so bring us bring us into maybe the 1700s, 1800s. Who would you like to highlight? Well, I think, you know, when you're looking kind of at Martha Ballard, what's kind of, we're, again, we're kind of relying on the written record and what one might can see as sort of an, a quote unquote ordinary role in the, in the 18th century, um, certainly amazing feats, but we know about that window to that time because of what survives and the records for what survives. So I think that it kind of carries through to some of um, uh, of what we're talking about, you know, kind of how do we know people's stories and what in constitutes uh, influence. But Martha Ballard, you know, you say she was um, the person for whom a record survives. But boy, was she remarkable. She was, she was. And I think that that's, you know, so to, to Libby's point earlier, it's what doesn't survive. So she was really, I mean, anybody who went to school in Maine, myself included, you know, you, you know, Martha Ballard, everybody knows Martha Ballard. So I think that sort of how can the written record really provide a window into the lives of these amazing women? And then how many more amazing women like Martha Ballard were there in the 18th century doing what she does and kind of, so I think that this, it's sort of the running theme so far is how do we know the stories and 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 what kind of world does that give us what kind of window do, do we get to into the world of the of the early historic main woman okay so um but we we do want to say some names oh <laughs> absolutely so, here I'll, I'll we'll rattle off some names all right so we've got um another fascinating person i think is madam wood she's maine's first novelist she was a fiction writer she's born in 1759 she was married like four times, raised her children, lived in Wiscasset, and wrote uh, fiction about the virtuous woman uh, on examples like families, you know, marred by scandal for land speculation and sort of all sort of the Wild West of, of Maine, as it were, in that time period. And then writing how the virtuous woman kind of rises above. So, <laughs> and this is yeah. Madam Wood? Madam Wood. Uh, I think it's Sally Sayward. Keating, there's a whole bunch of last names, but she calls herself <laughs> Madam Wood for obvious reasons, and she was Maine's first novelist. Okay, Libby, your turn. Well, in terms of thinking, you know, do we do we sit and think about firsts and sort of how do we do this? You know, I've been thinking of sort of colonial era women, thinking of Martha Ballard, right, that you were talking about in terms of the the written record. And I'm really interested in the types of records women leave and then by the other side, like who actually picks up these records and helps make them visible, right? Like Martha Ballard is remarkable because Laura Thatcher Ulrich, you know she's remarkable because Ulrich was able to code her diary and bring out all of this history and narrative. So, you know, Jamie and I have been talking about uh, a lot of women thinking about educators, thinking about women who write, you know, went for the vote, for the vote, thinking about artists. Um, and I was thinking also about Elizabeth Oak Smith sort of coming in in the, the 1800s and thinking about her writing, her journalism. And she leaves such a written record, she writes. Tell us about her, Elizabeth Oak Smith. 
Yeah, so what what she gets remembered for, and Jamie, you can certainly jump in here too, is although she she has all of these talents, right? That she is a journalist, she's a fiction writer, she's an editor, she's a lecturer. She's born, I think, right around 1806. Um, what she's often remembered for is being one of the first you know, if not the first white woman to to climb Katahdin, like that's one of the the things yes. that really emerges about her. Um, she has considerable feminist writings. She's definitely a women's rights activist. Um, and she spends a lot of time in Portland, in Cape Elizabeth. Um, she's a she's a teacher early on. Um, she is <laughs> sometimes best known by the man who she was married to, which is one of these other unfortunate things. She was the wife of Seba Smith, who was Maine's very famous humorist. So I think it's really interesting to kind of think about all these women were and like the multiplicity of their identities and like what gets lifted up through the historical record at different times. What do you think, Jamie, about her? Uh, well, yes, I mean, I'll, I think, Again, we were sort of going with the theme of women who either document their own story and how that kind of comes through. So I think then there's other kind of women that are famous in their own right. And even without historical, like, like Lillian uh, Nordica, Man, um, the famous soprano singer. So you see people, there's kind of a mix of people whose stories have, have survived in one way or another in the historical record, or where they're just their presence, their sort of being is just well known, like Madame Nordica or um, some other uh, Lucy Nicar uh, Nicolar Pula, a women's activist and uh, Penobscot entertainer. So sort of the like um, the famous women, and then the women um, who have told their own stories, or a combination of the two. <laughs> All right. Well, calling in now is Ashley Toll, who is director of the Women and Gender Studies program at the University of Southern Maine. Thanks so much for calling in. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to ask you a broad question, um, Dr. Toll. As someone who teaches history as well as women's study, tell us why you think it's important to learn women's history, to focus on this. Um, I love this question because I think it's a pretty easy answer. I think if you want to understand comprehensively history and the society we live in today, you can't leave out women. Like they are half of the population. Um, and so that's the easy answer. But I kind of I got in on um, some of Lydia and Jamie's conversation. And I think it's important to to study women and women's history um, because of the multiple roles that women play. Um, so I think traditionally the way that we thought about women's history, once it actually got picked up as something worthy of being studied even, is like we focused on um, like women's political activism and there was this focus on the suffrage and like getting the right to vote in particular. But what I love about the conversation that Jamie and Libby were having is that Women and women's history is much more dynamic than that. Um, women have always been part of the history of the United States. And so to understand that history more in more complicated ways, women have to be part of, of that conversation. 
When you teach and you have young men and women in your class, is there a particular aspect of women's history that takes your students by surprise that brings out some interesting conversations? Yes. Yeah, so I would say one of the, the funnest classes I teach is actually on women and reform movements. Um, because initially when students come into this class and they think it's going to be boring, like they think, okay, we're going to talk about maybe like temperance and prohibition. Uh, and it's not something that they're like super jazzed to talk about or think is super interesting. But once we get into like the, the tactics that women were using um, to advance temperance and prohibition they do get interested and when we think about some of the other um, issues that women in reform movements in the 19th century were involved with for example like anti-prostitution measures um, that kind of piques their interest and it opens up I think a larger conversation back to the point I was making previously that women's reform movements don't exist in a vacuum of like oh look this is, this is so cute what these women were doing, but it's part of this larger process of expanding women's political power and moving them outside of the domestic sphere. So they're using their authority rooted in kind of their morality, their religious piety. Um, they're using that authority that's derived from their roles in the home to say we deserve this more expansive role in society, that we can help reform society. Um, and so this leads to all kinds of interesting things in terms of being at the forefront of the temperance movement, also being involved in the abolitionist movement, because they see this as being, again, a moral crusade that they are primed to take on, in particular because of the way that slavery um, really affected and destroyed family relations. Um, so women are kind of primed to take on this role to attack slavery under those, those moral auspices. Oh boy, Ashley, so, so much interesting stuff, but we have to take a break. <laughs> I so appreciate you calling in. Dr. Ashley Toll with USM's Women in Gender Studies program. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. We're talking about significant achievements and contributions of women throughout Maine's history. With me today, Jamie Rice, who is Deputy Director of Maine Historical Society, and Dr. Libby Bischoff, Professor of History with the University of Southern Maine. Share your comments and questions. Tell us about a woman in Maine who is meaningful to you. You can send a brief email, talk at mainepublic.org comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. We're going to go to Kayla, who's calling from Gardner. Hi, Kayla, go ahead. Kayla, go ahead. Are you there? Shoot, it looks like we lost Kayla. Hopefully she will call back later in the program. Um, in the meantime, um, Jamie, you wanted to follow up on some of what Ashley was talking about before the break. I, I do. I think, you know, I think a lot of the women who sort of we kind of list off names are um, tied in some way to that kind of moral responsibility or to the suffrage movement or to temperance. So I just wanted to kind of name a few people who are sort of outside of that 
like mm -hmm. Cornelia Crosby, Flyrod Crosby, Maine's first registered guide, and uh, Clara Nash, um, the first woman admitted to the New England bar. So I think you'll see a lot of the names sort of tied to that, what is considered to be like a, a woman's crusade, as it were, especially in the 19th and early 20th century, but a few that kind of go outside of, of that mold as well. And when you're talking about women's crusade, a couple names, uh, very big names come to mind for me, and that would be Harriet Beecher Stowe and um, also Frances Perkins. And we're going to hear from an author of a Frances Perkins biography. But your point is Cornelia F Flyrod Crosby, Maine's first registered guide, not first yeah. woman registered guide, first registered guide, was doing yeah. her own thing in Western Maine while these movements were going on. Right, right. And what what is uh, more more Maine than than uh, than in the Maine woods? <laughs> well, speaking of, on the line with us now, Stephanie Dre, who is the author of a new book called Becoming Madam Secretary. Thanks so much for calling in, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. I understand your book is historical fiction centered on Frances Perkins, um, who is, of course, one of uh, the most influential women in American history with ties to Maine. Tell us why you chose to focus on Frances Perkins' life. Well, my family, unlike Frances Perkins' family, does not go back to the American Revolution and beyond. My family came to America in the early uh, 20th century. She was; They were part of the... Um, immigrant wave that Francis tried to help, and they um, survived the Great Depression. And my family was always talking about the New Deal and FDR and how he saved our family from poverty. Um, and so, you know, he was lionized as a hero in our family. But it wasn't until I started researching this book that I realized that she really deserves most of the credit. So I, I became very excited to write this book about her. What do you hope people come away understanding? I hope they understand that, in my opinion, she's actually the most important American woman in history. Um, everyday life that we experience today is still influenced by her. If you have a sprinkler system that keeps you safe from fires, if you can eat in a restaurant without worrying about rat droppings in your food, if you or any of your family have ever received Social Security benefits, these are all things that, that came out of her legacy. And I think we ought to have a, a park or a street named after her in every town in America. And I'll add to that, Stephanie, if you work a 40-hour work week, it's because of Frances Perkins. <laughs> Stephanie Dre, thank you so much That's for calling right. in. That's Stephanie, right. yeah, Stephanie's book, Madam Secretary, is coming out March 12th. Libby, what would you like to add to that? Just even in thinking about Frances Perkins and, and sort of structural reform, it's it's making me think about where we see and don't see women or know that women were responsible for things and and for me i really like thinking about the the built environment like seeing history reading history through the landscape through time and really thinking about women and work and women and in, in labor right and thinking about maine's industries thinking about the fishing industry thinking about the sardine canneries that were filled with women working thinking about the mills that come along and then thinking about about how we're walking around in communities and, and where we're seeing the presence of women in the past. Are there buildings named after women? Are 
their high schools named after women? Like, are there parks? Are there street names? Um, and I think, are there statues? And I think the more people look around Maine in particular, Maine has such a rich history of remarkable women and remarkable everyday women, but we're not in the landscape, in the in the built environment to the same extent. And, and it also, I think, allows you when you walk things like the Portland Women's History Trail um, and other things getting you out looking around to understand like Portland High School had a women's entrance, right? They went co-ed in 1863 and women had to enter in a different door. And I think thinking about that and, and thinking how far we've come is also an, an important part of this this narrative, like who are the women working on the docks? Um, who are the women in the factories? Who are the women doing domestic service? Because um, that's such an important part of this story. Well, perfect timing because Ray from Brewer uh, is calling in and wants to talk about Franco-American women in Maine. Hi, Ray, go ahead. Hi. Um, the interesting part for me with all of this, I have a um, article that appeared in the um, winter 2023 Maine Historical Journal on the knowledge gap of um, the Franco-American women that, you know, we, they're there, they're present in, you know, the the public places, but, you know, we don't know about that fact. So even Margaret Chase Smith, her mother was of French heritage, and Edna St. Vincent Millay, um, her heritage is Huguenot. The, you know, you have... Um, Camille Lesside Bissonette, who um, was an early adopter as a suffragist, and she uh, was, you know, I worked hard to get her in the museum exhibit and on the main women's suffrage trail, and she's there. The other thing is, is that there are so many um, of them, and I put a very large list in this article with the Maine Historical Society's journal. You have Betty Cody, who's going to be featured in a musical uh, um, program that the Historical Society is putting on. And then um, you have Madeline Jaguer, who was um, instrumental in getting the U.S. census uh, changed and having, you know, the French-Canadian designation added to the U.S. census, which really helped, I think, in bringing out a lot of the, you know, what was not in certain places in the education process for Franco-Americans. Patty Griffin, who is a huge... Um, uh, folk singer is from Old Town. She claims her um, background. Sarah Ann Jewett also has a uh, French background, and her um, biographer Josephine Donovan, you know, writes about that. So, um, you know, the list of these women for me is uh, incredible, and this is part of my research that I do. And it's interesting that Libby mentioned the. Portland Women's History Trail. I have a forthcoming article in the Portland Magazine um, talking about um, Alice Augusta Schofield Whittier, who I met. She's first woman uh, pediatrician in the state of Maine. She was our daughter's doctor, and you know she's become you know like somewhat known. Um, Maddie Panette was another one. She was a secretary to Dwight Eisenhower because of her French language, and she was from uh, northern Maine, Fort Kent. So I could go on, but I just wanted to make sure that 
you know, this is brought out. Into, Ray, uh, I, I so love that you called and I'm going to ask you a favor if you are on Facebook to go on to Maine Calling's Facebook page and go in today's post and put some of these names in the comments so people can do their own research and learn about these women. If you would, <laughs> sorry to give you some homework. That's, um, that's well, excellent. Ray, thank you so much for all your contributions to the exhibit. So we do at Maine Historical Society have a music in Maine exhibit that's opening a week from today. And a lot of the people that Araya mentioned, and Raya's contributions are featured in that show, including Lillian Nordica, um, uh, Patty Griffin, uh, Elise Fellows-White, and um, just you can see a lot of the um, uh, influential women associated with music in Maine in that exhibition. So thanks for the shout out. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Raya and Libby, go ahead. And I, Raya, had you in my list of influential <laughs> women writers and women in the arts that I wanted to talk about today and your memoir, particularly, um, you know, Wednesday's Child and, and Growing Up Franco. And I think you bring up, as you always do, like such an important point about language, right? Like understanding the history of women in this place we now call Maine is, is not just an English discussion. It's English and French and Penobscot and Passamaquoddy and Somali and so many other languages to like fully understand the multiplicity of women's contributions to this place, right? And 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 just, you know, it's it's limiting, right? When we're just able to say like, oh, well, here are these sources and they're in this particular language. So I think as, you know, more and more of Le Messager gets um, kind of put up online and translated for folks, like more and more of these stories are gonna be coming out and, and lifting up as you have done so much through your career and lifting up the stories of these Franco women who came before you. So this is just a, a gratitude shout out. Okay, thank you so much for that. I appreciate it and great show. Thank you. Bye bye. Rhea, thanks for calling in. Oh boy. Uh, we're going to go up to Montville and Leslie. Hi, Leslie. Go ahead. Hi. Okay. I found a woman that never gets mentioned. And um, I'll tell you who it is Margaret Knight of York, Maine. In 1867, she invented the flat bottom paper bag. That's what you see in the grocery store today. She started off making them by hand, cutting the paper and pasting. The demand was so great, she actually invented the machine that would make these bags. Demand was still so great, she started a factory. And this may be where she got discounted. She started the factory in, in, over the line in Massachusetts. But um, it was filled with her invention, and it absolutely revolutionized packaging. This was in 1867. And then she, you know, progressed from there with her machine and the factory. But you'll still still see the flat bottom paper bag today, and she never gets mentioned. And it's always, I mean, this is in technology. I think that's so important. It's not just art and writing, which you might expect for women in the traditional sense. But she actually moved into product, technology, business, and I think it's great. Margaret Knight. Leslie, I love this story. I love knowing about Margaret Knight. I'm, I'm curious, how do you know about Margaret Knight? I saw a blurb, one of the fill-in blurbs in Downey's Magazine that said Margaret Knight had this um, way of making a paper skirt to protect women's long skirts when they would be out so would, you know, mud would get on the paper and not on their skirts. And so I said, oh, well, it's interesting. I wonder what else she's done. And so I just did some Googling, and I kept going through, and it showed her with her machine and, and the bag and everything. And I said, how come more people don't know about this? So every time I'm doing anything with school groups, I always say, look up Margaret Knight. 
I love this, Leslie. Um, I love that um, that you are like those of us who produce main calling and go down rabbit holes and learn as much as you can about something. And thank you. Go ahead, Jamie. I was saying the, there's a great book called Eminent Mainers, and it has all kinds of fascinating tidbits about people in Maine who've invented things like the earmuffs or, you know, brownies or although that one's controversial, but lots of, so it's a fun, I wonder if Margaret Knight is, is in that book. If not, she should be volume two, I guess. And one of our producers, Jonathan Smith, has just cut and pasted this information. I'm not sure from where, um, but it says, from her earliest years, Knight was a tireless tinkerer and a scholarly article titled The Evolution of the Grocery Bag. Engineering historian Henry Petrosky mentions a few of her childhood projects, which tended to demand a certain facility uh, for woodwork. She was famous for her kites and her sleds were the envy of the town's boys. With only rudimentary schooling under her belt, the 12-year-old knight joined the ranks of a Riverside cotton mill in Ranchester to support her widowed mother. In an unregulated, dangerous factory setting, the preteen toiled for paltry wages from before dawn until after dusk, and the source is the Smithsonian. So, boy, this is really a, a highlight of today's show. Leslie, thank you. Thank you. And exactly what I hoped would happen on today's show, because no one group of people can ever make a list, right? Like I was so hoping to learn about new Maine women myself and to bring up like where you're looking for them, right? Such a good point the last caller made. Well, we're talking about, you know, where we see them here and in poems and in writing. Well, where do we see them in patent activity? Like, where are we looking at inventions? Like, where are we looking for these stories and to and to lift them up and, and make them visible again and again? now recorded in perpetuity on Maine. Yeah, yeah. No one's like Mary King Scrimger, which is, uh, has patented uh, in turn of the century patent for a radiator attachment that you could hang your clothes on to dry. So if you're in the in apartment and you so all kinds of uh, interesting patent and technology history to be explored. Leslie, thanks so much for calling in. Who do you want to highlight on today's program about women's history? You can give us a call. 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org or post to Facebook or Instagram. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. We're learning about many women from Maine who have been influential leaders, artists, trailblazers, inventors, and thinkers. Joining me, Dr. Libby Bischoff, history professor at USM, and Jamie Rice with the Maine Historical Society. You can join our conversation at 1-800-399-3566. If you are very fast, you can send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org or post to Facebook or Instagram. I'm going to read through just a few emails really quickly. Um, so of course, on Instagram, somebody said fly, fly Rod Crosby, who we've already talked about, but this is fun. Two people want to mention Mabel Wadsworth. Um, uh, her legacy in women's health in Maine cannot be overstated. There are so many great Mabel stories, but the best known is the diapers on the line story where she would drive around Penobscot County looking for clotheslines with diapers on them and would stop and talk to the women of the house about birth control. She has a <laughs> legend and she had the best funeral I've ever been to in my wife. And so all, Nancy also wants to talk about Mabel, Mabel's work, the fact that she started Maine's first family planning clinics in the early 1970s, and um, concludes by saying Mabel was a woman of vision and action. Her works continue to serve Maine residents today. 
And then um, Patricia says, I read the book More Than Petticoats about 15 years ago about many remarkable women of Maine history. The first is about Tante Blanche, who served many people in the St. John Valley from starving one winter when the men were on a hunting expedition. Wonderful story. So thank you for those emails. We're going to go to Grace Tetro now, who is a senior at Morse High School, where she is president of the Women's Empowerment Club and is organizing a women's recognition ceremony. Thanks for calling in, Grace. Hi. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about the Women's Empowerment Club. How did the club come about? Yeah, so we started, um, we formed about two years ago during COVID, um, just to kind of make our community more accepting of women and, and address some issues about sexism. Um, and yeah. <laughs> Tell us about the event you're organizing. Yeah, so last year we received um, kind of 27 nominations of local women in the community. And this year we received about the same uh, who demonstrate excellence, character, and leadership in their respective pursuits. And our club actually narrowed the number down to 10 local heroes um, from entrepreneurs to volunteers. And so we're really just hosting this event on March 5th at the Morse High School Auditorium in Bath at 5.30 to essentially thank these women for being excellent role models and uh, share their stories and, and really just how awesome they are. Um, it's a public event with no admission, so if anybody is listening and wants to come check it out, um, please pack the house. Grace, not to put you on the spot, but could you tell us about one or two of the women you'll be honoring? Yeah, um, we have one whose name is Britt Hyde. She is a fitness instructor at Spark, uh, Spark uh, Cycling. And really, she, she kind of transitioned into the uh, fitness um, kind of realm a couple years ago. And now she's owning her own business and really motivating women to take control of their bodies and, and push themselves and find new limits. Um, last year, we had the first Maine um, Olympian, Leslie Kritschko. She was an Olympic Nordic skier in the 1980s and 1988 um, uh, Olympics. Um, so we have some really cool stories. Well, Grace, thank you so much for calling in. That's Grace Tatro, who leads the Women's Empowerment Club at Morse high school boy and Ray, grace was talking about athletes and we haven't even talked about athletes said joan benoit samuelson or um uh of course but some of the others um I, i'm gonna go to a few more emails though um warren called in to say heather cox richardson contemporary writer and thinker but she will be remembered in the future for her contributions to society, uh, former main calling guest. And Libby, I know you want to talk about, um, and both of you, even though this is technically a women's history um, program, in the future, there are women alive today who we will be talking about, many women in Maine. So uh, Libby, why don't you um, give a quick shout out to some of the women in Maine today who are, um, in your view, really groundbreaking, and, and we may not quite, you know, appreciate how much so. Yeah, thank you so much for that, that opportunity. And I think, you know, I'm always thinking past, present, future, and just women who, who inspire me in, in public life. And I think um, in 
because they also continue so many important traditions in Maine. So I'm always incredibly inspired by Molly and Dana Bryant, the uh, tribal ambassador for the Penobscot Nation, the way in which she is constantly pushing everyone to think um, about sovereignty, to think about growth and relationships um, in the in the political and cultural sphere. Um, certainly Rachel Talbot Ross, Maine's current um, speaker. And I think carrying on this long tradition of civil rights and advocacy um, and lifting up for human rights. And I wanted to um, just also give a, a shout out to really important political woman who, who passed away this past fall, uh, State Representative Lois Galgay Reckett, who was just a fierce, fierce champion of gender equality, of LD, LGBTQ plus rights in Maine and around the country. Um, her loss is really palpable to a lot of communities in Maine um, and her legacy is, is tremendous. So thanks for that opportunity. Okay, and I'm going to add to that, of course, Jessica Meir, who is um, an astronaut and um, is, um, you know, in line to possibly walk on the moon, possibly be the first woman to walk on the moon um, from Aristic County, from Caribou. Jamie, who would you like to throw in from uh, a, a list of women who are alive and, and doing amazing things today who well, I think, we oh, need to sure. shout well out? call out. So I think it's important to note, you know, we have a, a Maine's first uh, female governor. We have, and so you look, looking at the kind of the politics, but kind of circling back to the athletes. And so, and actually Maine Historical Society is recognizing Joan Benoit Samuelson this year as our Maine history maker, which is an event that we do annually to recognize um, history in the making and uh, contemporary history makers. So it's very exciting with the 40th anniversary of, of Joan's uh, win at uh, the 1984 Olympics. And in the past, we've also uh, recognized at that same event uh, earlier years, uh, Mary Bonato, who uh, argued the cases for um, same-sex marriage before the, the Supreme Court. So very, uh, very relevant and, uh, and a reflection of sort of the ongoing work that Maine Historical Society does to not only document the past, but to uh, history in the making. That's right. And and again, just scratching the surface. All these right. names are popping into my mind, but I'm also looking at the clock. Uh, we're going to go to Eric, who's calling from Freeport. Hi, Eric. Go ahead. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for taking my call. I'm calling from Freeport Historical Society, and I wanted to mention in general that um, you know some some of the most amazing things in Maine have been influenced by women who arrived in Maine from away, as we might say, uh, even who came as summer people to start with, but really fell in love and brought that outside perspective to uh, bring fresh eyes to what's special about Maine and what needs to be uh, preserved. And I wanted to call out specifically Eleanor Houston Smith, um, who uh, in a sort of unlikely story arrived here in Freeport from Philadelphia Society uh, and ended up becoming a pioneer in soil conservation and organic farming and founded Wolf's Neck Farm uh, here in Freeport. Um, and I know Libby could say more about this since, since Eleanor is the same Smith as the Smith uh, Center for Cartographic Education. Um, but uh, Eleanor is so often mentioned alongside her husband, uh, L.M.C. Smith, and they were absolutely partners in their conservation work together. But Eleanor was really a driving force in so many of their conservation efforts, including 
uh, giving what is now Wolf's Neck Woods State Park uh, to the state of Maine. Uh, and uh, it's one of those things that I think so, so often when we hear about a couple, um, we don't necessarily focus on the woman who is a part of that couple um, when really they may be a leader in and of their, their own right. Eric, thanks so much for that call. And you talking about people who were not raised in Maine but had an impact here in conservation, of course, made me think of Rachel Carson. So, um, Eric, thank you so much for your call. We'll go up to Bath and Patricia. Hi, Patricia. Go ahead. Hi, um, I'm calling from Bath, and I'd like to recommend that anybody interested in important women in Maine read Women of the Dawn about Indigenous women uh, featuring four famous women, one of whom is Molly Ockett, who was born about 1740 and had a very interesting life near Freiburg and served as a healer to some of the settlers coming in. Um, that's There are three other women featured in the book, Women of the Dawn by Bunny McBride, for anybody interested in important indigenous women of Maine. Um, thank, thank you, you Patricia, much. so much for bringing up that lovely book. And, and yes, I know it. And thank you so much um, for bringing that up. We have an email here. Um, from Lee, shouldn't we include Louise Nevelson? So of course, and and actually right now there is a big Louise Nevelson show at the Colby Museum of Art. So, um, but you know, boy, we start talking artists and Dala Vipkar pops right into my head. Um, Libby, Jamie, who would you like to add to that list? Her mother, Margaret Yes, yeah, I was gonna Zorak. say. Zorak. Um, absolutely. Margaret Zorak, yep. Yeah. Uh, Mary uh, King Longfellow, a watercolorist. Uh, um... Yeah, it's again. Uh, oh, no, go ahead, Jennifer. <laughs> oh, I was just going to read a new email. Uh, this is from Heather. A new book for young readers is coming out next month by Midcoast Maine writer and artist Ruth Monsell. It is called Francis Perkins, Champion of American Workers. So, Heather, thank you for that. You know, it's really interesting to me, Jamie, because I first learned about Francis Perkins' legacy. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, about 20 years ago and, and became very, very interested. But it seems as though there is really a surge of interest in Francis Perkins right now. Yes, yes. I think with the Francis Perkins Center is, is doing great work to kind of bring that, bring her name more to the to the forefront, but definitely uh, a revitalization of scholarship and people interested in, in her legacy um, and, um, and as we were talking about earlier, sort of bringing to the forefront the things that she did, the, the role that she played in how we live today. Um, Libby, we have a, a couple minutes left, and I'm wondering if you just have any thoughts about how you think about Women's History Month and um, if you set some time aside for, I don't know, to for a gratitude practice or to maybe um, delve into some sort of person's life or some aspect of history well, that you that you had it before how, how do you celebrate this month what a lovely question that is um yeah i i think particularly you know i'm always trying to call women to mind um not just in march but i think especially for the i give so much thought i mean as an historian it's hard not to to the work of recovery that goes into actually being able to lift up women's stories. So 
I like to spend when I can more time in the archives in March. Read. I like to read women's diaries. Um, I like to discover, you know, pieces that we don't know. I like to look through yearbooks. I like to think about particularly, I think my gratitude lies, Jennifer, with, with teachers, right? And thinking about the outsized impact that educators have had, women educators, certainly men too, in the state of Maine and, and all over the country. So in, in March, I really like to spend a lot of time calling to mind uh, influential women teachers in in their own right. Um, I, I got a really lovely chance to think already today about my mentor, Carol Patillo, who lived on Vinyl Haven, who passed away about 10 years ago, but who was just a force as a, as a collegiate educator, um, as a really prominent rug hooking artist later in her life, um, someone who did a lot of elder care advocacy on the island. So yeah, it's just a really, for me, it's a time to really think about those who um, have shown the rest of us the way and taught us so we can do what we do. So thank you for that question. And Jamie, what about you? Uh, I, I would say to include uh, Libby in that conversation and think, I think, you know, I'm in the history business and it's important that making history accessible and making history interesting and making it relevant. And Libby, I think you do an excellent job of that. Oh, now I'm going to cry on the radio. Thanks, <laughs> Only I can see you all on Zoom right now. So, um, <laughs> um, you know what? It's so interesting. We just talked about the attention that Frances Perkins is getting right now. And we just got another email uh, about her. This one's from Heather. A play about Frances Perkins was written by Tara Lynn Ryder, a Demarscotta resident only woman in the room and it was performed at the lincoln community theater a few years ago there's also a one woman show madam secretary and another play about this amazing woman as well so um i'm guessing we're saying jamie it's about time yes <laughs> absolutely absolutely i would encourage people to check out the francis perkins center um uh, website they've got great information about her and her legacy and are really doing some great things I hope we start naming more things after women. I mean, that's really a thing I, I call to mind because that keeps, you know, that keeps people constantly in mind. I will commend the University of Maine who renamed in 2022 uh, a hall in, or, in honor of Beryl Elizabeth Warner Williams, who was the first black student woman to graduate in math and went on to have a really prominent career as a professor and an educator and, and a dean. So. I think these stories get lifted up also when they become more visible, not just in books, but also in, in buildings around us. Well, thank you both. Dr. Libby Bischoff, Professor of History with the University of Southern Maine, and Jamie Rice, Deputy Director of the Maine Historical Society. Today's sound engineer was Sam Tracy. Our theme song was composed, excuse me, it was not Sam Tracy. It was Jane Donahue filling in for Sam on this Friday. Thank you, Jane. And Maine Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. Visit maincalling.org for our audio archive and to subscribe to Maine Calling's weekly newsletter. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you have been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.